Hello. So today you are hearing for the very first time our new equipment, Casey. We are in the basement of Engelman Hall on campus talking on professional podcast equipment. Can we get a round of applause? We for the can. new equipment, yes! <laughs> oh, that's fun. Let us know if we sound different, you know? Yeah, we're trying to up our game here. You know, we're having these important conversations. We want them to sound as good as possible. And, you know, recording in a pandemic has not been easy. No, but we're getting better at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be, um, hopefully, you know, it's just up from here. But we hope you enjoy this this new sound Yes, of the podcast. And today we had just a delightful conversation with a good friend of mine, Dr. Abby Adams. Yes, today was a really educational um, conversation, I think, for myself. So I did a lot of listening today, which may be a little different for our listeners to hear, but I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jamil, usually you're a little chattier, but it's, it's true. We're talking about reproductive justice. We're talking about specifically about, um, abortion access to abortion and you you know your position has been this i'm here to listen Mm -hmm. i'm here to learn i don't have a uterus so yes perhaps i'm better off doing more listening than talking i think often we don't mention enough sometimes in social justice conversations it's okay to take a back seat Mm -hmm. not to feel like you know it all not to think that you have the answers and to listen to others that do, that have the answers, that have the knowledge and absorb that. So, yes. And today, you know, we're talking with Dr. Abby Adams, um, who is a, a friend of mine I met back way back in the day um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when she was working on her PhD. And she is currently uh, an associate professor of anthropology at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is in Pennsylvania. It's not Indiana, um, but it's called IUP. Um, And she's also the director of global health programs and the director of LGBTQ studies at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Um, So please enjoy this, this conversation with Abby. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, Casey. So today we're talking about reproductive health, reproductive justice. Reproductive justice. Yes. And we have today with us one of my dear friends, Abby Adams, to talk with us about this question of reproductive justice. And I'm just delighted, Abby, to have you here with us. Welcome to The Real Talk. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So, Abby, we met, and Jamil, you don't know this story, we met uh, in Mm -hmm. Albuquerque, New Mexico, way back when, 2004, 2005, when I was actually your age. And I did not have my act together the way you have your act together. I had just moved out there. I just graduated from college um, and met Abby, really sort of my first friend in Albuquerque. I was delivering pizza and working in a coffee shop. And, you know, I, I think I had 14 W-2s from that year and met Abby. And, you know, you've just been such a dear friend ever since. And I met and Jamil's telling me he was in the third grade. Thank you. Did you need to do that? 
Mind you, mind you was alive. Listen, <laughs> I wrote it. I wasn't gonna say that on air. I wrote it down. <laughs> I was like, "What is he?" Oh, he did say that. Anyway, we've established our our age differential. But Abby, I met you when you were um, in grad school. I had no idea that I would go to grad school, become a professor. Truly, no idea. Um, and I've been thinking about how that was important for me to have met you. Um, just as a friend at that moment when you were working on your dissertation, you were working at the abortion clinic and looking, questioning this idea of choice um, and just hearing you talk about your research, your, your work, your caretaking work with women at the clinic, um, that just was really inspiring for me, the way that you always have taught, um, you know, whether it's in the classroom as a professor or with community or friends, really taught from a place of of love, and I don't mean to <laughs> get you verklempt right before we're we're talking here, but really that that did that's how we met, and um, that that work has been central to what you do now as a professor. So, why don't we start off with you know some myths? I think you know there's so many myths out there around you know this question of access to abortion and to reproductive justice. Like, what are some of the the myths that you want to bust with us today? Sure. Well, first, I thank you so much, Casey. That was well messy here. Um, so I will say that um, I think it's really important for everyone to know um, that abortion is a very safe procedure, whether it's surgical or medical. Um, and the reason I feel that way is because I think um, one of the ways that so many laws are put forward is um, through this idea that abortion is unsafe and women need protected. Mm. Right? And so um, the reality is that it's a very straightforward procedure um, within the first you know, trimester. It's typically, if done by a trained practitioner, um, which of course, uh, considering Roe v. Wade, uh, women in the United States should have access to train practitioners. It's a procedure that typically takes around 10 minutes. It's done through oh, wow. by these natural openings. Um, it, it, the risks associated with it are minimal, less statistically than root canals. I mean, it is mm. incredibly safe. And the first time I witnessed the procedure, I was, as you mentioned, in graduate school, I was just applying um, to work at the clinic. And... Um, uh, you know, before you are hired, they ask you to sit in on the procedure, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be intense. And after the procedure was over, I was like, that was it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> Baffling. Um, because it was just so simple and straightforward. Uh, that being said, of course, it's not just a, you know, surgery. It is uh, obviously entangled in so many ideas about um, life and citizenship and um, <clears throat> the, the uh, individual. So, um, but the procedure itself is so straightforward and safe. That, that's important for people to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had no idea it was only 10 minutes. That's really yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is literally a, a very, very quick, shockingly quick. Of course, if you make an appointment, you're going to be at a clinic for a couple of hours because there's pre-imposed care. But the actual process itself, uh, if you're doing an aspiration procedure, um, uh, is uh, approximately 10 minutes. Hmm. 
And I've been reading about, you know, of course, the law passed in Texas that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing um, or considering December 1st. Um, but these heartbeat bills, there are a lot of um, mm-hmm. bills that seem to center around this question of, of fetal heartbeat, um, which mm-hmm. ha- is a, a measure that's fairly early on in a pregnancy, no? Yeah, and this is, again, why I think information is so important. Um, first off, the idea that there is a heartbeat is completely medically wrong. Um, there is no, uh, there is cardiac, there are cardiac cells which are moving blood through the tissue of the pregnancy, um, which, um, you know, so there is no little heart that, you know, that doesn't happen until a fetus forms and that early in the pregnancy, there is no fetus. There has to be blood moving through the, I mean, from just a purely medical perspective, blood moves through all tissue. There has to be blood moving through tissue or it will die, right? Um, and so there's, it's been reframed as kind of a heartbeat and it's been given kind of the status of human life. When it's, when from a medical perspective, you ask any scientist, any biologist, what you have are cells that are specialized in moving blood through other cells. So that is, first off, a misnomer completely that there is a heartbeat. I would like to lay that down very clearly. Hmm. When you worked at the clinic, and you spent many years there, right? How long were you there? Uh, yeah, I almost I almost, uh, <laughs> I almost made it my life work. Um, but thank goodness I, I did graduate, although I really loved working there. Um, I worked there for, I think, 12 years. Oh, wow. 12 um, years. Yeah. It's a pretty long time. Most, you know, um, you know, I feel like I grew up there, really, quite honestly. <laughs> I remember just, you know, uh, hanging out at the end of a day and whatever I was doing, whether it was delivering pizza or working in the library or any of these various jobs, I just, Mm -hmm. the, the level of, um, it's just such a different scenario because you, you and and our other friends who worked at the clinic would talk about walking through the protesters, um, you know, Mm -hmm. being, being basically a caretaker and a witness to someone who is, you know, having an abortion, some of whom, for whom that was not particularly emotionally taxing, I'm sure. And then some for whom it was really huge and hard and being there for that um, and spending a whole day doing that um, and also dealing with political pressures, um, just the, the the level of sort of stress and, and patience and big heartedness. I think you need to do that work. Um, it's not like going to other, other kinds of work. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, and, and for any abortion workers out there, um, I just want to say it is such an intense job. Um, and it and it's hard, but um, it's also, if you work in the right place, so incredibly fulfilling, right? Um, to be able to activate your politics, to support women through, um, you know, what is for some women the hardest time, for other women, you know, they're getting their life back. Um, you know, of course, receive experience of that um, uh, that reproductive decision. Um, but yeah, I actually kind of very much miss it. Like mm. I feel like, of course, I love being a professor. I love um, t- 
teaching my students. I love my relationship with my students. But um, I, I feel like I got so much from um, being kind of present with women mm-hmm. through that decision-making process that, um, you know, alleviating their fear by giving them a medically accurate knowledge. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the women who came to the clinic, unfortunately, said to us that that was the best medical experience they ever had. Right? Wow. Um, and that's wow, why aren't they getting better medical experiences elsewhere? Um, but just kind of the level, uh, the the underlying ideology of the clinic with um, of the feminist health movement with sharing of information and demystifying the process, um, giving women agency in the decision-making, you know, in the process itself, which typically doesn't happen in medical models. Um you know, I, I really also miss, um, and you kind of alluded to this, the, you know, the sistership, the sisterhood of working at the clinic, right? Um, kind of the everyday um, camaraderie, uh, you know, kind of united against the, uh, um, the, the dragon outside the gate, so, so to speak. So, yeah, it was a really amazing time, and, um, and I, I miss it, and um, I'm thankful for anybody who does abortion work. It really, you know, when, when you're talking about people saying, and I have no doubt because, you know, there's so many terrible medical experiences that people have. And I know that that it was a loving, caring space. And I can imagine how many people said that that was the best medical experience they've had. That's certainly not the world we want to live in where that's the case. Um, because how many doctors will they have been to? You know, many. And how that really is busting a myth in itself because, Clinics, providers are often painted in this really grotesque, kind of murderous light. Um, And really, the opposite is the case. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you're an abortion provider in the United States, um, you're, you're doing it because you have a political commitment possibly a religious moral commitment, not to make money. <laughs> right, right. That is not a happening. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and the idea, the other part of this is that women also expected to be treated poorly, right? Which, you know, is, is sad because they come to the clinic and they're treated um, like moral agents and they're shocked, you know? Well, let me ask you this. When there's such a variety of access to care around the country, depending on where you live. And I'm wondering, like, does it actually reduce, like when we, in places that have made abortion difficult to access or illegal, do women get fewer abortions? Does that data? Yes. Yes and no. So in general, in the United States, poor women get fewer abortions. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and that ha- there's many layers to that. Um, it has to do with access. It has to do with access in terms of geography. It has access to do in terms of the um, cost of the procedure and its exclusion from any type of um, Medicaid or any type of state-funded um, insurance, right? So there's something called the Hyde Amendment, which precludes any coverage of 
um, abortion services at a federal level, state by state, individual states can make the decision mm-hmm. to provide um, tax dollars to cover, but um, most don't. So, um, you know, if you are going to have a procedure, most women have to pay out of pocket. Um, and unfortunately, what can happen is women can afford uh, the procedure and end up having a child, right? Um, you know, and if you can afford a, a, a $300 to $400 procedure, um, you know, the idea, you probably live in poverty. Um, the other thing that happens is um, not only do, do poor women have fewer abortions, they statistically on the other end have more unintended pregnancies. Hmm. That also has to do with access to, you know, birth control and other types of reproductive health care. Hmm. Um. I read uh, recently that in 2020, Texas facilities performed something like 54,000 abortions. You know, obviously Texas is a huge state with many people living in it. But I just think about if there are that many people, I mean, that's just a huge number of people who are impacted by this by this bill and, and others like it, you know. But when you really think about each one of those people as an individual person with a very complex life, um, many of whom are mothers already, right? Which is sort of, I think one of the common cultural narratives is, is like the, a young woman going to a clinic who doesn't have any kids yet. And certainly that is a, that's true in some cases, but also there are a number of folks who have children already who for a variety of reasons can't or don't want to have another. Yeah. The, um, when I was doing research at the clinic for my dissertation, <laughs> excuse me, the majority of the women, not the vast majority, but the majority of the women um, that I interviewed were mothers already, right? They already had children hmm. and they were um, terminating a pregnancy because oftentimes what they told me is because they couldn't afford to have a child and didn't want to um, take away from the little the little that their children had. Um, so, you know, the narrative of, you know, kind of young, careless girls, you know, yeah, just, yeah. Um, you know, unintendedly becoming pregnant um, from some compromise, you know, sexuality. Uh, that is, you know, I always say um, the type of person that has, or the type of person that has an abortion is the type of person that has a uterus. Mm. Um, because there is, yeah. I mean, you know, it's the most common surgery in the United States and around mm. 25% of all women who live in the United States have an abortion within really? their reproductive. I feel 25%. like I'm just sitting here learning all types of stuff today. Who would have known? 25%. One out of four. 25% of all women. So we all wow. know and love, care about women who have terminated a pregnancy and it doesn't matter what your political stance is. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely the case. Wow. One out of four. The most common surgery? Yeah. Wow. The and the safest. And the safest. And of course, I have to get anthropological and get global. Um, it's the number one cause of maternal death worldwide. One safe abortion. So, yes. Um, so, wow. There's a lot we uh, need to do, right, to do better by women. 
Um, particularly if we're thinking about, you know, um, the United States, women in Texas. Uh, you know, I never thought, I am just gobsmacked that I am living in a moment when uh, women in Mexico have more access to abortions than women in Texas. That's not something I, you know, as somebody who does research in both geographies mm-hmm. along the border, and I never, I never thought that would be the case. And the piece about Texas that is that strikes me as as a different tactic is is the part where the law deputizes people in the other, you know, citizens of the United States, not even residents of Texas, to. Um, be able to sue, call on, chase after anybody who, even someone who gives somebody a ride to a clinic. Like, Jamil, you and I could file a, a lawsuit based on how this law is. Which is absolutely ridiculous. Right. That's, that's you know, like sending a mob after after people, the fear tactics um, and the financial. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I just, um, you know, it's just even hard for me to address in terms of just, it's unbelievable. Um, the, and you know, the gender inequality of it, there is no equivalent, um, charge for men and any decision they make around their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it weaponizes people against women, right. Um, in, in a really new and creative way that I didn't, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, the courts have been used in many, many ways to reduce women's access, right? The idea was um, from the position of the pro-life side that Roe v. Wade would not be overturned, so we have to do other things to limit women's access. Now, um, that is potentially on the horizon with the, with the way the court is um, populated, the Supreme Court is populated. There is the potential that um, this horrifying potential from a human rights perspective um, that uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And there are about 26 states that are poised to become uh, 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 geographies where abortion is criminal. And, you know, it really, you know, you point out it's a human rights issue, certainly a women's rights issue. And at the same time, there are many women who support these laws and from just looking at it from the outside, that could seem hypocritical perhaps, or the case of folks who um, are avowed pro-life believers who then go in to get procedures themselves. Like us looking on the outside, that one read would be that, that that is somebody who's being hypocritical or the uh, irony of it all. I, yes, right? But I think, you know, as an anthropologist, uh, you, I think, have a, a broader perspective about how that, that those, the tension in those viewpoints is possible. Yeah, um, and I had, the, I had a similar perspective. I, when I first started working at the clinic, I was very young, <laughs> um, very idyllic, right? Um, and I was uh, kind of, angry that the clinic was giving such amazing service uh, to women who were angry at us, right? They were like, you shouldn't be here and I'm pro-life. But I want this procedure. And it was just shocking to me. I, for some reason, I thought 
uh, and I'm sure many people do and did that, that women who come to abortion clinics are probably mostly pro-choice. Um, and that w- was not what I found. Uh, I found that um, it was about not quite 50-50, but almost 50-50 uh, uh, percent of the women that came to the clinic that I interviewed over a, about a two-year period uh, identified as pro-life before their procedure. And then um, 20% or about one in five women afterwards continued to identify as pro-life. <laughs> and that course was really interesting to me as somebody who was, uh, uh, was an activist, somebody who was an anthropologist trying to understand kind of um, the process of choice and decision-making around abortion. So, um, but these women, when I started to talk to them, um, you know, I was like, well, you're just getting, you're just accessing a safe procedure uh, because it's convenient to you, you know, but they really were tortured by their decision. Many of them, they didn't want to have a procedure done. And many of them used the paradigm or the narrative of sacrifice that they already had children and therefore, you know, they just couldn't have another child financially. Hmm. Um, and um they couldn't return to their homes and suddenly say, I'm pro-life, you know, or pro-choice rather. Right. Uh, their communities, their churches and their families where they had first learned to be pro-life. It wasn't, it's not safe, you know, it's not safe for them to suddenly switch their political affiliation. Although I do truly feel there was, there's always some shift that happens when mm-hmm. somebody has a safe experience and, uh, you know, feels that they were respected, even if they um, don't agree <laughs> with the service I provide, ironically. Um, but, um, and that was one of the other moral things that I learned um, working at the clinic is that it's not really my uh, responsibility to, you know, dole out abortions in a moral fashion. It's a service that everyone deserves, and it doesn't matter what their political beliefs are before and after. Hmm. As a human right. As a human right. But that's really interesting, too, hearing about how complex the idea of choice is for people and how they think about that and whether or not they are safe to say they're pro-life or say they're um, pro-choice and how they approach that decision at home in their communities. I don't think we talk about that often enough, how complex that might be. Right. It makes me think about um, vaccines and how... You know, if you're in a, a community where people are not getting vaccinated, they, they think COVID's a hoax. If you secretly really want to get vaccinated and you're scared of getting COVID, there are folks who are doing that sort of in the closet. Mm. Um, because as human beings, right, we like people's safety is wrapped up. Safety, well-being, care, all of that. Our, many of our basic needs um, is wrapped up in our connection to our families and to our community sense of belonging right which is also dangerous not to have you know yeah yeah exactly it's very uh to get again anthropological it's very adaptive mm-hmm. right to maintain your uh family and and uh, social belonging yeah absolutely now can we talk a little bit about false abortion sites you know they seem like they are a place that you can go that's safe but um they're a little deceiving. Yeah. Um, they, my primary, well, I have many frustrations with fake abortion clinics. Um, 
they um, they give misinformation. The, they present themselves as medical experts, um, and they are not. Um, they might have a sonography machine, but that does not. The, the experts they are not. Um, they often get some get funding from state um, taxes. There's over two thousand of them throughout the nation. Um, far exceeding, far, you know, like one to eight abortion clinics, right? I mean, it's just, um, uh, they're, they're pervasive. They target communities that are disenfranchised. Um, when they offer, um, you know, kind of goods and, and, and resources to young, primarily young women, not always, but definitely economically disenfranchised women, um, and it, there's never, it's never kind of no strings attached, right? They are trying to prevent somebody from terminating a pregnancy. Um, and uh, a lot of the research shows that the care that they give is very temporary, that they focus their resources on preventing pregnancy, not um, helping to sustain a child's well-being after they've been born. So it's more like, let's get this person past X number of weeks. Yeah, and they they give misinformation. They lie. Um, I mean, they have to. It, I mean, abortion is so safe. You, you can't be compelling or scare women um, if you were to give accurate information about abortion services. Mm. And so how do people, I mean, I, I, you know, there's certainly billboards that these um, fake... Uh, clinics put up. And I remember, you know, that uh, I'm flipping through the phone book in my mind, but they're also in the phone book. Um, obviously online now that we <laughs> use the internet. Yeah. I'm looking at you like, when's the last time have you <laughs> seen a really phone heard. book? Of oh, all okay. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. That's so funny. You say that Casey, cause I was joking with one of my coworkers, uh, once about how, you know, like for our abortion services, how do we, you know, we want to be first in the phone book. So we were going to call ourselves Aardvark Abortion Services. So you get the double A. Mm. The yeah. double A in the phone book. We would definitely be first. So, <laughs> but I mean, there's sort of, there's, there's, uh, I was trying to describe like how, uh, you know, from, if I'm looking at something, how am I going to distinguish between a real clinic and a fake one? And there's sort of a look. Huh? but that's a vague way to, oh, yeah. to, to say that. So what are some ways that people could like, you know, if folks are looking for services for themselves or for somebody else, how do they know? Yeah. Find you the know, red flags. What are, some, <laughs> what are some flags? Um, yeah, that's really important to think about. Well, the first thing is, um, y you can always call mm. right ahead before you actually get there. Um, and ask them, uh, about what type of information they give and what type of services they give. Um, and they might say that they give accurate information about abortion. And in fact, most of them do. But um, one, I have this kind of, I don't know if I'd call it whimsical, but it seemed to be to me um, kind, kind of amusing. Um, a, a fake clinic opened in my town um, a few years back. And so they were called my choice and I was confused. I was like, uh, this doesn't sound right. I can't imagine mm. that all of a sudden there's an, an abortion clinic opening in, in my town and I don't, don't even know about it. 
Um, so I called them and I was asking them questions and the woman on the other end of the line could not even utter the word abortion. So I immediately, like, if she couldn't even say the word, I was kind of like, maybe they're not going to be giving equitable information. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they can't even say the word, that's a good sign. But beyond that, I would um, ask them um, for credentials, um, who on their staff, is credentials. Um, and I would also ask them um, if they have any relationship with Planned Parenthood or other women's clinics. And um, that would give you an indication of kind of the type of information that they would be disseminating. And I would always say, if you have a Planned Parenthood in your community, go to Planned Parenthood, support Planned Parenthood. Mm. Um, unfortunately, you know, lots of women, particularly rural women where I live, don't have access to um, reproductive health care that is known to be safe and give accurate information. So that's often a a big barrier is geography. How many independent, I mean, Planned Parenthood is well known by name, Mm -hmm. which is really useful when you're looking for for services. You know that that's a, a, a legitimate, safe place to go. Um, but how many independent clinics are there and how many are, are just clinics versus uh, um, sort of an office that, that has many different sort right. of yeah. health services? There's, there's kind of different ways that you can access abortion services or different places. There are freestanding clinics like where I worked and that do primarily abortions. Um, that is a product of kind of the ghettoization of abortion services because they were perceived to be not normal healthcare. Mm. Um, so, you know, the, the problem with freestanding clinics is they allow uh, protesters to target right. providers and, and women. Um, you know, if they're integrated into healthcare and you're going into a hospital, nobody knows what, you know, what procedure you're going for. Some hospitals do provide abortions, um, uh, some electively, uh, but if you have any religious affiliation, chances are that they don't provide abortion services. Not only do they not provide abortion services, you might be endangered if you are in the process of having a miscarriage because they will not refer you mm. to somebody who can give you a oh, yeah. D&E or a dilation and curatage or a dilation and evacuation depending upon where you are in your pregnancy. Um, so some hospitals do. It just depends. Um, <clears throat> then you might have a independent provider, a, a, a physician um, that might provide uh, abortion services in their office. Um, that has increased. Well, that, I shouldn't say it has an increase. Um, that um, it's easier for physicians to do that now with the medical abortion mm-hmm. um, because they don't require the aspiration equipment to do the procedure. Um, so, um, so those are the kind of the three outlets, if you will, through which women access abortions. Um, there's probably about 200 freestanding clinics, uh, or I shouldn't say freestanding, yeah, clinics throughout the U.S., but they don't provide just solely abortion services. Most of those also provide other types of reproductive health care. Now, when you're talking about two protesters outside of, like, the abortion clinics, um, mm-hmm. how much of a barrier to deterrence is that? Like, it seems like that can be really hostile um, really emotional to walk through that. 
and really traumatic. Can you talk a little bit about that and those experiences? Yeah, it is. It's it's just, um, it, it hurts women. They've By the time women get to our clinic, uh, the, where I work, they had already, you know, um, called us, made an appointment, many of them driven hours, right? I lived, it was a very rural state, uh, New Mexico, right? And we saw a lot of women from Colorado and Texas as well. Um, So um, by the time they actually get to our clinic, it's not like they haven't made a decision or figured out that this is absolutely, you know, that pregnancy is not going to work for them for, or there's a problem with the pregnancy. That's the other thing is uh, we saw a lot of women whose pregnancies were wanted, but were not viable or, um, and then for them to have to be, you know, to be subject to the condemnation of people who had no idea what they were going through was really terrible to witness. Um, but, um, it, you know, even if it is an elective procedure, still women, these women knew what they needed. Um, they know, you know, what they could or couldn't manage in their life. And, whether or not they were ready to be a parent or a parent again at that moment. Um, so, you know, it's just horrific to see the judgment of these people who don't understand the women's lives uh, stories. But um, uh, the other thing is, you know, um, it didn't, it doesn't change women's mind. It just, mm-hmm. it just gives them hardship. Um, right. So, but, uh, and I respect people's position, right? I, you believe that that is a life. I respect um, your position to hold vigil, right? Um, but to scream and, you know, behave in ways that are um, so horrific. I mean, um, you know, it's just, you want to protect your patients, but uh, legally, oftentimes you're not allowed to. Hmm. I'm frustrated a lot of the times by, you know, as someone who studies language, the the framing of this debate, I mean, not and also just the fact that we're still having it, but I'll set that aside and just say that it's so frustrating to me, the, this pro-life and pro-choice framing, those two words, because um, I think it's limiting and I think it, it, it leads to sort of some false conclusions and a false binary um, because certainly we can problematize the idea of choice. A lot of people, right, who have abortions and people who don't, a lot of times they don't experience that they have any sense of choice. They feel like they're doing what they have to do. And then in terms of pro-life, you know, what about when children are born and then live their lives as human beings. What about supporting those lives, you know, of those people once they are, once they emerge on earth mm-hmm. <laughs> and start walking and talking? Um, and also just, just supporting, you know, I just think that, 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 that split, that binary, that, you know, choice versus life um, doesn't capture it. And I think it keeps us sort of locked. Yeah, absolutely. I concur. Um, that's one of the things that I, when I first started working at the clinic, I was like, yay, I'm pro-choice, I'm activating my politics, I'm a radical feminist. <laughs> and then uh, all the things got quickly complicated and sticky as, as it does with humanity, where I was um, doing things like um, uh, helping a woman 
terminate a pregnancy because she had found out that her pregnancy was female. Um, and they turned it over to me because they're like, you're the anthropologist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. That quickly complicates the feminine, your, your position as, mm, as a, mm. a feminist that's pro-choice, believe me. Yeah. Um, patriarchy yeah. seeps in. Yeah. Um, and so um, the, the, the reality that so many women who identify as pro-life terminate a pregnancy, even though they truly believe it's not. It's not that they were that, that they just kind of are. Uh, it's their, uh, you know, um, pro, say that they're pro life. That they are truly pro life. They truly believe that their pregnancy is a is a living human being with a soul, and they still choose to terminate a pregnancy. Women who have identified as pro choice their entire life find out that they're have an unintended pregnancy and feel like a moral failure and can't believe that they are one of those women mm. having to this procedure, which they have, um, you know, supported ideologically, but never in a million years that they would be choosing to terminate a pregnancy, even though over half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. Wait. So, I mean, it's just such a... Um, hold on, hold on. Half? Half. Wow! Yeah, we're oh. just showing up here. Wow! Yeah, I mean, do, we did <laughs> we did our our homework. I like to think of myself as a good feminist with friends who have worked in abortion clinics. Um, yeah, it's it, it it's it, it hovers around like forty seven to fifty three, depending upon kind of what's up socially. Mm. So, I mean, the takeaway one takeaway for me from that is this whole conversation really is that this is a, a human rights and a human being issue. And, and it doesn't, you know, you can have whatever ideological views you have, the -hmm. chances that you're going to end up if you're a woman uh, during your reproductive years with an unintended pregnancy and, and uh, ideally would have the resources to, make choices around that in the ways that best support your, mm-hmm. your life, your well-being, your family. Um, but this is a really common thing and it doesn't obey our biology doesn't obey our ideology. And it's no, not, not just, at all. it's not just whether or not you want to go through with that pregnancy or do you have the financial means um, to care for a child after also the risks of pregnancy itself. Oh Yeah. Like from a man's perspective, pregnancy looks scary. It does. Mm. Like the side effects, the things that happens to your body, not everyone has the privilege of allowing that to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and- yeah. And when I'm sorry, uh, when I was talking to women um, at the time of the post-operative exam, that's when I interviewed them about their experience. A, a significant percentage, I think, it was. Um, I have to look back at, at my, my specific research notes, but it was something like one in 10 referenced health concerns mm. um, impacting their decision to terminate a pregnancy. Um, you know, it, it, that it's not just kind of this binary of, uh, you know, do I want to be pregnant or do I not want to be pregnant, right, right? right? Or is it wanted or unwanted? There are just so many, obviously, so many layers to somebody's life regarding whether or not um, it's time to become a parent. And uh, for a lot of women, it's a very, very risky thing, uh, particularly if 
you're uh, older, right? Um, there's uh, a lot more risk in reproduction the older you get. And if you already have kids, which most women that I spoke with did, they were essentially um, scared to not be around for their kids, right? Um, and that, that definitely impacted their decision um, to end a pregnancy. Hmm. Well, one thing that Jamil and I talk about is really like what should the the role of men be in this conversation you know Jamil's always like look I don't have a uterus I shouldn't have an opinion yes Jamil does not have a uterus I just do not <laughs> therefore I cannot tell somebody what to do with theirs it's a very strong opinion of mine um, I'm just not in the business of telling folks what to do with their bodies which I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a... You gotta stay in your lane. You gotta stay in your lane. So I'm staying in mine. <laughs> but then I wonder, I wonder, because usually when I have a, um, you know, an opinion about something, Abby will make me rethink it um, in some way or another. But, like, what do you think about that argument? Like, it's, it's not, if you don't have a uterus, it's not, it's not your business. Well, I... Um... I'm always like, well, it depends on what your opinion is, mm. whether or not you should or not. <laughs> <laughs> that, I can see that being a good point. I can see that being a good point. No, I'm, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But um, I think um, it is, it's like all of those kind of really, really personal experiences. Um, it, it, it's something that's really hard to speak to. But there are a lot of women with uteruses that open their traps that really um, don't understand the experiences of other women who may be disenfranchised or, or don't have the kind of material reality they have or, you know, the, the sure. familial support, you know, or the joy, right? The, you know, it's like if, if you think that pregnancy is just always joyful, um, then you have – you you clearly have a very specific type of life. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I would say about that. Um, I believe, um, I believe in conversation. I believe in conversing with people who don't agree with me. Um, but, um, pregnancy is so, it's it, because a woman's body and a woman's social life more as importantly, not just our bodies, our social lives, Right. are so incredibly transformed by the process of pregnancy. It is important that these laws and considerations come from those experiences. Yep. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, we are on a college campus right now recording this here podcast. And, you know, campuses have in the, in the history of, of abortion access, feminist activism, health, health activism, a, you know, an important history. And we're going to ask you about that, Abby, but I'm, you know, curious about Jamil, you were recently a student mm -hmm. and you were an, also an RA. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, we know that, that many unintended pregnancies happen during college mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, one, another reason that women seek abortions is because they don't want to interrupt their education um, mm -hmm. in this particular moment. Um, and, so I'm curious, like, what was your experience? What were sort of conversations you were pervy to, you know, what? Oh, 
That's a very interesting question. Or is it like a hush-hush thing that people weren't really talking about? I think it depends on where folks are sitting. So I like how you brought my perspective as an RA because mm-hmm. you're like a mentor to a building of a couple hundred students. Right. But I think it shows up more in your friendships, mm-hmm. more in your personal aspects, because it's not really necessarily something you would talk to your RA about unless you're super close to them. But I have had experiences having this these conversations about what should I do next with this pregnancy? You know, I'm a broke college student. Um, I'm in my second year. I don't have the time or capacity for this, mm-hmm. or maybe I don't have the support from my family or from my partner for this. So what should I do next? And I always just go with the aspect of supporting them with the decisions they want to make. Mm-hmm. I think often folks just need someone to talk it out with um, and just support them emotionally and allow them to come to their own conclusions and support them in whatever way they need to be supported. Also, like recommending health services on campus mm-hmm. and, you know, other resources that are in our New Haven community. But um, other than that, really just being a quiet person in the room yeah, for somebody, listening. I find to be my experience in that. Well, it just, the way that you just talked about that reminded me too, just about how the stigma of getting an abortion still in this day and age sticks to women in ways that it just simply doesn't stick to men. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And the idea that uh, what breaks my heart is I know that how many women that I, you know, counseled and who um, I was present for going through this procedure um, and they chose to end a pregnancy because they wanted to be good parents, mm-hmm. whether they were too young at the time or they already had a full plate, whatever the reason. And they, they did it because they knew how sacred parenthood is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they're made to feel like bad parents. It's really unfortunate. Right. So what, what are the, like historically, what has the role been of campuses um, in terms of reproductive health care, abortion access? Yeah, I had this really interesting experience when I was doing working on my dissertation of um, kind of haphazardly asking my father, who's a Presbyterian minister, about abortion in the uh, pre-Roe v. Wade. Right? I was kind of like, hey, my dad's a minister. He'd probably talk to a lot of people, (laughs) including some women, right? Um, And so I started to ask him, and he told me about several of his friends who were campus ministers who were part of this collective called the Jane Collective, and um, essentially there was this underground um, referral system across campuses, um, and campus ministers would um, give women the names of sympathetic doctors who would provide safe procedures for them. Um, and that essentially became a, a underground network pre-Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Uh, there was a number you would call uh, and it would go to a, a phone in New York City. Um, and they would um, ask you where you were and would give you a number uh, to call. And um, so it was kind of, this unknown history as uh, it was really amazing for me to kind of learn about this because there's this kind of 
idea that the pro-life side has the religious moral high ground, right? Right, right. Um, and to learn, and I and I know inherently that's not the case, right? Because I know the type of people that provide abortions and, and work in the and do this work. But um, but but the kind of history that's told, I to to know that there's this you know underground network of religious practitioners who recognize the moral right to this procedure um, was really amazing. So what you know, um, we like to to end conversations on the podcast towards looking at the future. And as I'm listening to you now, I'm thinking like, are we going back, you know, with like, are we going back to a pre row world? And if so, are we going to be passing out business cards with phone numbers to New York again? Or what, what new alternatives might we, might we have despite laws that are limiting access? Well, I'm always, um, I always try to think of the long game. And of course, this is horrific for particularly, obviously, women in Texas who are currently yes. experiencing an unintended pregnancy, right? This is a crisis moment for them. Um, so, uh, but I, I know that the pendulum swingeth, so to speak. Um, and, you know, um, Roe v. Wade has been under attack and has been, um, you know, destabilized um, uh, very, very <laughs> successfully, very efficiently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was over 100 anti-abortion bills passed um, recently. You know, and this is the, this is, uh, cri- this is the critical mass. There's more than ever before, right? So th- we need to have, I think, a conversation that solidifies this right. My fear is, of course, we don't have a, a court that um, leans that way. So it's a, it's a really scary time. Um, if uh, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, what we're going to see is what we always see when abortion becomes illegal is that women will be harmed. Women will die. It doesn't stop abortions. Uh, it just makes them unsafe. And it makes them uh, particularly unsafe for certain categories of women. Mm. Um, those are uh, poor women and women um, and, and young women, right? Um, women who are typically disenfranchised from medical access um, are the ones who die at higher rates. Um, so, you know, what's really unfortunate is that we have, you know, such a short memory um, pro, pre-Roe v. Wade. So many people had sisters, aunts, um, you know, friends uh, that had perished because of illegal abortion. Mm. And, do, you know, it's like, it's like the same thing with COVID. Do we have to remember? Do we have to go through this to remember that, you know, we need to take care of each other um, and that people deserve access to medical care um, and that our own survival depends on it? Apparently, this is a lesson we need to learn every couple of years. So I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to... Um, I'm definitely not going to be a Pollyanna and say things are great because they're not. But I also don't want to um, say all is lost. Um, my hope is that the pro-choice side will activate, um, you know, will collect and move some legislation forward that may, that solidifies the right to abortion. Um, unfortunately, some geographies 
um, the the right to abortion is being eroded, and it, and essentially it's going to be potentially a patchwork in the future where if you have access to safe abortion, it's simply going to be a, a reference to your zip code. Hmm. Yeah. Um, now that I'm thinking about all of this, reimagining what this could look like, is more open information. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I've sat here and I have learned so much just from this short time with you. So thank you so much for that. And we but, like to think of ourselves as, as informed ex- yes, people. Informed people, but I feel like I am so much more informed now. <laughs> However, I'm thinking about why wasn't I not informed previous? I think I find myself in many spaces of education and spaces of conversation. Like but daily. like yeah. yeah, but like why aren't more men informed on this topic and know about it and having these conversations on a regular basis? Um, I think folks may think the topic of abortion may be scary, but this conversation was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it filled in a lot of blanks for me that I didn't know I necessarily had. And it seems to me like, you know, I'm always an advocate for more conversation, but reducing the stigma and shame because of, I mean, just the, the how common unintended pregnancy is how common same thing with miscarriage you know we don't talk enough about that we don't talk enough about menopause we don't talk enough about all kinds of women's reproductive health and other health issues at all um but if we're talking more about it then perhaps we would have more of that longer memory you know of the harm that was caused um and people who were lost uh before roe for example mm-hmm. And that we would know a lot of times I think what happens is somebody is pregnant and they didn't mean to be and they feel freaked out and they feel alone and they feel like ashamed because this like this hasn't happened to any of their friends or anyone in their family. But in all likelihood it has. But perhaps we just don't know because we don't talk enough about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, a lot of times uh women, if you have an unintended pregnancy, they hear about a a safe place or about abortion from, you know, somebody they've told. It's like this kind of secret society, right? right. right? Why do you have to wait until you have an unintended pregnancy to learn this knowledge? And and there are so many people who don't have access to the knowledge, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, yeah, and it it, it shouldn't be so shameful. Um, And, um, and the other thing is, um, you know, if people think it affects their fertility, right? They think, yes, oh, you know, I want right. to have a future. And that is absolutely not the case. Um, that just, just, just factually untrue. Mm. It's not at all affects fertility. In fact, I can't tell you how, you know, at all of the clients that we saw at the clinic, we would counsel them for birth control because you become fertile very quickly mm. after a pregnancy termination, like within a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> Listen, these are, this is good information to keep in mind and now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, one, one thing that makes me feel um, hopeful in this moment is the access to things like Plan B and to um uh what's it called a a, a pill that can induce abortion uh, the chemical abortion yes yes Mif- yes yeah abortion yeah. Mm-hmm. so access to the that where where you don't necessarily need to go to a clinic to have a um to terminate a pregnancy safely um 
that's just remove some barriers, right? I will also mention we do have access to plan B on campus. Mm. You can get it over at health services. Hmm. And both of those, Abby, come from women's knowledge Mm -hmm. before they became pharmaceutical products, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Plan B is a, a big dose of hormones. And so it's essentially four birth control pills um, put into one pill and an anti-nausea pill. Because if you've ever been on birth control pills, you know that if you take more than one at a time, it makes you nauseous. So it's essentially, you know, you would take, um, if you were concerned about something, you would take four birth control pills at once. Um, and then um, that's what women would do. But it turned into plan B, right? Pharmaceutical company did uh, trials and uh, marketed it. Mm-hmm. Well, so, I mean, this is really a, a interesting time to be having this conversation. It seems to always be an interesting time to have this conversation, but particularly we're at, we're at this sort of a, a peak moment right now, which makes it an interesting moment, I think, to reimagine beyond this particular battle, perhaps like in, if you were, Abby, if you were like creating the world of reproductive health, um, what would that look like? What, what would true justice look like? True justice would be a place where women could decide when and in what context to parent. Um, you know, I am clearly adamantly pro-choice. Um, that women should be able to terminate a pregnancy um, if there's a comprom- if it compromises their health or there's a problem with the fetus or pregnancy or if they are just not ready to be a parent. Um, the myriad of reasons that women choose to end a pregnancy, but I also um, very much embrace the reproductive justice model where women should be able to choose to continue a pregnancy, should have the material resources Mm. and the social support to be able to add to their family freely and without uh, fear of compromising the well-being of their other children. Um, So that's, those are just two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is the world that I wish for. Lovely. Yeah. That's it. I'm sitting here listening and I'm like, what would I add to that? I mean, that. (laughs) I will follow your lead with that. Mm -hmm. Well, just the sense of ease and having, having your needs met and being able to make choices about how to live your life. Yes. And I, the only piece I'd add, I guess, is just that as a part of that, we would also be able to have open conversations and be free of the the stigma and 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 shame around accessing care. yeah absolutely. yeah absolutely and we could acknowledge that women um know that that we should trust women that they know um when and, and under what terms they're ready to have a child yeah i like that point we should all trust women yes well abby thank you so much for being with us today this was you know, it's a it's a heavy thing to talk about, and um, also clearly your podcast 
co-host here could use some also some education which we got today in our group. Yeah, we did. Oh, happy we did. to share um, with our listeners well you're not unusual don't feel bad most people don't know and it's quite remarkable um that most it's, it's, it's still true most people just don't know i'm really i'm still taken aback by just the how common it is i'm taken back mm-hmm. with the only 10 minutes Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know in my mind how long I thought the procedure was, but I definitely wasn't thinking 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you've, yeah, blow, you've blown our minds. Surgery is a little bit of a misnomer, too, because it's not even a surgery. It's done through body's natural opening. So there's just, you know, there's there's a lot. A Guttmacher Institute, that is a great resource. Uh, the Kai Foundation... Um, you know, if you want accurate information about abortion and abortion services, Planned Parenthood is always a great organization. Um, donate to Planned Parenthood, the Lilith Fund. If you're concerned about what's happening in Texas, there's a really great organization as well. Um, and we can all do something on our at local level that we all, we all have a, a role to play. For all of our listeners, you can find those links in our show notes. All right. Well, Abby, I hope to see you in person real soon. I hope to meet you in person. Oh, yeah. Yes. I know. I can't wait. That would be so lovely. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. I truly do appreciate you and the knowledge you just brought. Yeah. Love you, friend. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate you highlighting this really important topic. So thank you very, very much for your work.